Welcome to the latest podcast from Red Star Radio, the podcast of the Marx Engels Institute. And today we are going to be looking at a couple of big things, mainly the latest news from Ukraine regarding Russian offensives all the way across the line of contact and the brief Ukrainian counteroffensives in one particular region, then moving to an examination of the myriad of cabinet changes that has gone through in Ukraine, including now talk of the possible replacement of the Ukrainian Prime Minister, Denis Mahal, who is apparently next on the chopping block. And we're going to be looking at why these have taken place, the possibly why, and was it linked to the recent visit to Kiev by CIA Director William Burns as the envoy of Joe Biden. And will we finally get that Boris Johnson, Vladimir Zelensky spin-off to this uh, ongoing series where these two ill-matched friends share a flat with hilarious results. All of that coming up. But also we're going to be looking at the Davos men, specifically the British Davos man, Mr. Keir Starmer. Sorry, Sir Keir Starmer. And his ridiculous assertions that he's been making all, all through this week when he's been attending, of course, the surreal and bizarre World Economic Forum conference in Davos, where the, of course, the Russians weren't there, and uh, the former heavyweight boxer turned loser mayor of Kiev, uh, Vladimir Klitschko, has, of course, been boasting about the fact that he's at Davos and Putin isn't, when you only need to look at the attendees list at Davos, everybody from Greta Thunberg to Keir Starmer, to reveal the obvious truth that, well, it's not the winners that are going there, it's the losers. So Davos man, cometh, what should we make of him? And that's going to be the show for today. So we will begin, as always, with a look at the news from the front line in Ukraine. The latest coming out of there is that the Russians are making gains um, across uh, the Zaporozhye region and the Donetsk People's Republic region. They are advancing all the way across those two areas. There was a brief Ukrainian attempt to land men in small boats uh, across in the Kherson region. So if you look at the map uh, of the Kherson region, of course, the Russians withdrew from the west side of the Dnieper River and shortened their front line in the process. And Ukrainians have been trying to launch maneuvers ever since then to launch small landing parties to uh, take some kind of offensive action on the eastern bank and so far every single one of these has failed and the Russians are claiming another five boats full of men were destroyed today. And when I say boats, I mean um, small inflatable boats. So this was obviously some kind of special forces operation, attempted operation that the Russians are claiming that they thwarted with over 100 Ukrainian casualties. So Ukrainians trying to do something down there and evidently not working. The Russians are advancing, as I said, all the way across the, the line of contact now in slow incremental advances every day, taking a village or two as they move forward. Whether this is the prelude to a major assault or whether this is just the way it's going to go now with the Russians slowly advancing uh, up through the area of Donetsk and Zaporozhye, who knows? As I said, the Russians keep their secrets very well. But it's certain that the offensive that was mooted by the various allies of Ukraine in the West, the idea of them going for 
Zaporozhye and then pushing through the Zaporozhye region and then down towards Melitopol and trying to cut off Crimea. That seems to be more of a pipe dream than ever at the moment, particularly with all the chaos going on inside the Ukrainian government and the fact that even according to General Zaluzny in his interview given before Christmas, they don't have enough men to do this, especially with there still being uh, so many tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops stuck in Artemovsk, or Bakhmut if you prefer the Ukrainian pronunciation, an offensive from the forces of Ukraine seems very unlikely at this moment in time, given that it's the Russians that are on the move. And some increasingly panicky uh, maneuvers coming from inside the Ukrainian government doesn't look like there's going to be any offensive action from them anytime soon. And of course, Ukraine's latest wave of forced mobilization is still going on. So if we go by their tactics that I outlined the other day that they have been using, according to Russian sources, and also backed up now by the sheer number of casualties that Ukraine has had inflicted upon it, it seems that they're looking for more men to serve essentially as bullet shields before they can launch an offensive with what was planned to be a new army that they were going to assemble by April or May. Whether any of that is possible is anybody's guess right now. It just certainly doesn't seem like that would be. So the Russians are on the move. Uh, the Ukrainians are in more and more trouble. And this might lie behind some of what has gone on inside the Ukrainian government over the last few days. Now, as I indicated at the top of the program, there's now rumors coming from Ukrainian sources that the Prime Minister of Ukraine, Denis Shmihal, might be the next to be forced out. There's a whole long list of people, of course, starting with Aristovich, Zelensky's old friend and spokesman, who tried to resign. They didn't accept his resignation and they sacked him. He has since gone on uh, a series of tirades on his Instagram channel revealing various truths about uh, the war since its start. And of course, as I said on the previous program, Aristovich is an interesting fellow because he used to be an associate of Alexander Dugin, used to be as a pan-Russian nationalist, and then became a servant of the Ukrainian regime. But at the same time, he wasn't all in on the uh, the Western Ukrainian aspect of it. Uh, he did try to make something of an appeal to the Russian speakers, being, of course, a native Russian speaker himself. But he's gone. And he made an interesting statement several years ago, which had resurfaced earlier on in the war, back in April, I believe, of last year, where he's doing a, I think it was an Instagram video, this is before the latest phase in the war started, before the special military operation began in late February of last year. And Aristovich, I think it must have been back in 2020, was saying, well, in order for this project, i.e. the Ukrainian nationalist project, to work, we have to lie to everybody else and lie to ourselves constantly. And it's one of Aristovich's candid moments. And he, of course, is correct. The, the lies are non-stop and have to be non-stop, otherwise the whole thing would fall apart. And... If the truth is becoming more widely known in Ukraine, that they have sacrificed over 100,000 men for no conceivable gain, other than the gains in the pockets of certain very corrupt officials, including Zelensky himself, then this whole enterprise might start to fall apart. Maybe it is already falling apart. So we get now to the, the confirmed sackings, 
Uh, we've got the Deputy Minister of Defence, the Deputy Minister for the Development of Communities and Territories of Ukraine, Deputy Minister of Social Policy, and various heads of different military districts and regional military administrations. So the heads of the military district in Dnepropetrovsk, uh, the head of the Zaporozhye military administration, his uh, equivalent in the Kiev region, the Sumy region and the Kherson region. So that's an awful lot of people, important national and regional officials sacked in one day. And if that was Putin doing all those sackings, you can bet every last dime in your wallet that it would be on the front page of the New York Post, the Daily Mail, Le Figaro, various other reactionary newspapers, and it will be all over the press. And so the question arises, well, why has this been done? And the answer, I think, lies in well, several places. First of all, there is the visit of the CIA director and, of course, former ambassador to Moscow, William Burns, the man who wrote the famous memo back in 2008 saying Niet means Niet, meaning uh, he was feeding back on his discussions with Russian officials over the expansion of NATO. So there's a man who knows and understands the reality of the situation in uh, eastern Ukraine slash western Russia and knows more about the Russian government than most of the others inside the Biden administration, having served there, having um, been a man who has spoken extensively to Putin and other Russian senior officials who speaks Russian, of course, unlike many of the others in the Biden administration. So he is a serious individual, uh, of course, a very uh, dangerous reactionary, but one who knows his business. And that's to be separated from an idiotic reactionary. Burns, because he knows what he's doing, is a far more capable uh, reactionary official. So Burns goes over to Zelensky, sits down with him, and then all these firings start. So what is clear is that the Americans have, have made an assessment of the situation and have decided that many of these people just won't do. And this was also reflected in Lloyd Austin, a famous Raytheon board member and temporarily Secretary of State for Defense, when he said that Ukraine was now at a turning point. There's been a lot of talk of this in American governmental circles and American bourgeois press. And the truth seems to be getting out into American government circles that this isn't good, that the situation in Ukraine is bad. And of course, Burns and the CIA probably knew that all the way along. But of course, the rest of the American government might be catching up. That's why you get hysterical buffoons like Lindsey Graham going on about, send the Leopard tank, send the Abrams tank, send everything, because it's going wrong. It's going badly wrong. And even though the... Um, Ukrainian front hasn't collapsed yet. All the independent assessments coming from military specialists in the West and in Russia itself all concur that Ukraine has been wounded very badly by the defeat in Solodar, continues to bleed badly in the um, siege of Artemovsk, which Zelensky stupidly hasn't withdrawn from, continues to send uh, more and more men in there and has done for week upon week upon week now and the Russians are now pushing all the way across the line of contact as I outlined earlier so clearly there's an element of panic that has set in so who are they getting rid of here well uh, it seems to me that they're getting rid of people who are either so corrupt 
that they are beyond useless and that they are bringing in people who are more to the Americans' tastes, maybe slightly less obviously corrupt, or people whom, shall we say, have a very close relationship with either the CIA, the State Department, or both people who perhaps have gone through various training courses that were provided by the American embassy. Because remember, the American embassy in Ukraine was their largest in the world. Uh, It was a huge um, operation that, depending upon the figures that you actually look at, it was either between 700 to 900 strong. They had people attached to all the government ministries before the beginning of the special military operation last year. They were running policy effectively in all these areas. If you look at the documents that leaked out, uh, that uh, Russian hackers got hold of in some cases, or just that were on the, openly available on the internet, the American Embassy, the National Endowment for Democracy, and other American NGO-type operations were designing government policy for the Kiev government going all the way down to the parking schemes in Kiev. This was like a full takeover of the government. So perhaps they're bringing in people who were working with them then to fill these deputy positions. And the reason why they're sacking the deputies is because in many cases, it's the deputy who actually runs the ministry, not the minister. The minister is a figurehead, nothing more, a spokesman. So maybe they're putting in place people who they regard as more capable Maybe they're getting rid of Zelensky's cronies. And who knows? Maybe they might ditch Zelensky himself when they decide that the show's over. So all of that indicates that the Americans are very well aware that things are going badly wrong, as does the hysteria over the over the leopards. Because as I said in the previous program, it's every assessment made by independent military experts with knowledge of tank warfare says that Ukrainians won't be able to learn how to use these things in like a week. It's not like um, Tank Commander or something or a World of Tanks online where you just jump in and go. It's uh, These are incredibly complicated and dangerous pieces of machinery. So would like 100 Leopards and 12 Challenger tanks and whatever the hell it is the French have dug out of their museums make any difference? At this stage, probably no. Because... There's no way that they can be trained to with, uh, within the necessary time period to be effective against the Russian offensive that is going on now that will only build in intensity, it would seem. So the idea that 100 leopards given tomorrow to Ukraine would make a difference is a bit of a joke. So what are they going so hysterical for? Well, partly it's the media cheerleaders who are all so stupid that they think that they can, the Ukrainians can just jump into these leopards, press the accelerator button, pull the trigger, and let's go. So they're getting hysterical because they don't know anything. But also, there seems to be an idea that some of the military planners in NATO still think that Ukraine could pull something off if they can get enough um, cannon fodder into the trenches to essentially soak up this latest Russian assault, which is what they've done before. So if this latest wave of mobilization can go through like a week's training, be all handed a Kalashnikov, shoved into a trench, they hope that that can possibly buy them enough time to train up Ukrainians on these various NATO weapon systems and then to have them launch some sort of counteroffensive in, what, April or May, which seems to be an outlandish concept given the large disposition of forces that the Russians now have and the 
fact that they heavily outnumber the Ukraine's now on several areas of the front line. And we still have, of course, the unanswered question of what the hell all those Russian forces up in Belarus are doing. Are they just guarding against any stupid maneuvers from the uh, the mad reactionaries in Warsaw? Well, who knows? Or the yapping dogs of the Baltic states. It would seem that there's rather a lot of them there, and they are building and building this up all the time. So whether any kind of offensive could be possible even if they receive all these leopard tanks in Ukraine. That's a very, very doubtful proposition, to my mind, anyway. So what the hell are they doing? We're going to do with them. Well, even if the Germans do release them all, and these these Ukrainian tr- crews are trained on them, they'll have to be trained outside of Ukraine, they'll have to be trained in Poland. So what does all this add up to? Well, speculation time, really. And here it takes us back to speculation over what possible end games might be on the cards here. It could be that this is a maneuver designed to essentially find a government that can run a Ukrainian rump state. So previously we've talked here on the program about the fact that the Ukrainian government is likely to lose all of eastern Ukraine or what was eastern Ukraine all the way through the different regions that are now voted to join the Russian Federation. So Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk, Lugansk, and also the Kharkov region, and also all the way down to possibly including Odessa. And this map I'm talking about, by the way, this was a map shown on Polish television before uh, the beginning of the special military operation or very, very early on inside of it. And that map showed Russia taking the entire east and all the coastline, the Poles taking the entire west, and the Hungarians coming in and taking the traditionally Hungarian region of Transcarpathia. And that was on Polish national television, so somebody in the Polish government fully approves of that. So that left, according to this map that was shown on Polish TV, which bizarrely concurs with a prophecy made by the clown prince of Russian nationalism, the late Vladimir Zirinovsky, who proposed that Ukraine be split up between a Ukrainian rump state around Kiev, Polish Western Ukraine, Old Galicia, and of course Novorossiya taken into the Russian Federation. And some people in Poland, quite a lot of people would seem at government level, seem to rather like that idea, including uh, arch-reactionary Radek Sikorsky, who's been openly speculating about that. Um, He is, of course, in the opposition party to the uh, Law and Justice Party, run by uh, Matthias Morawiecki and uh, President Duda. So, he has every reason to uh, claim some responsibility if this maneuver that the Poles undoubtedly now have in mind to take Western Ukraine comes off. Sikorsky, of course, his party is running in the elections against Duda and Morawiecki and this year, so he has every reason to talk this kind of thing up and then claim that he was all his idea. But it seems that Morawiecki and Duda are edging towards doing this, and they're edging towards doing this by April or May, which would coincide well with the Russians finishing off the Ukrainians in the east and possibly diving down toward um, Odessa. So is this, let's call it the Zirinovsky uh, proposition, going to come off? And is what they're actually doing, um, getting all this military equipment ready to not necessarily go into Ukraine and be provided to Ukrainians, but be provided to this new Polish force that's going to be emerging. I saw 
a video from the guys on the Duran and Alex Christoforou was speculating that that might be the case, that the that the leopards are actually for the built-up Polish army and not the Ukrainians. It's a possibility. And I do return to my previous statement, though, that the only way the Poles go into Western Ukraine is if there is some kind of understanding with the Russians. I don't think that they go in risking uh, open warfare. I think that they would go in having reached some kind of agreement behind the scenes, very much behind the scenes. And it would be fully in character of the current Polish reactionary government to scream, yell and shout about the evils of the Russians and how everybody's got to strip their arsenals and send it to Ukraine and then (laughs) uh, turn around and uh, covertly do a deal with the Russians to swallow Western Ukraine. And there's been some indications from Putin and others that they wouldn't necessarily be opposed to Western Ukraine being hacked off, so to speak, and that what would be left would be essentially a buffer zone, a neutral buffer zone, uh, between old Galicia, now New Poland, and the Russian areas, which would be the area around Kiev. So is this something which is now an emerging idea underground within the various governmental systems? Are various people coming around to this idea of, okay, well, we can't have um, we can't have the Russians take the whole damn thing. Uh, we can't have the Russians take everything. So maybe let the Poles go and take Western Ukraine, leave the central part of Ukraine as this buffer zone, essentially a giant no man's land between two now opposing military blocs, Russian, Belarus, and their allies on one side and the remains of NATO on the other, with Kiev in the middle. It certainly seems to be that that is the way things are drifting. And as I said, I think that all the shouting and the hysteria from the Poles, it may well be a case of the Lady Duff protest too much. Because do not rule out the cynicism of the Polish reactionaries. If they think that an underground, under-the-table deal with the Russians will get them what they want, and will do so with them, looking like they've taken some incredibly tough stance and helping them win an election, whilst in reality having risked nothing because they've already done a deal whereby the buffer zone is left intact and the Poles agree to not put American weapons systems, specifically American uh, medium-range missile systems in the newly acquired territories. All of these things are possible. But again, let's go back and think about that treaty that the... uh, Russians put before NATO in November of 2021, where they called for the withdrawal of U.S. forces in particular, or Western NATO forces, U.S., Britain, Germany, France in particular, from the territories of the old Eastern Bloc. Specifically, they're thinking about not as much about like tanks and troops and stuff like that, though they did say that, but most specifically American missile systems which could do rapid strikes on St. Petersburg and Moscow. That was their real concern, and that is, of course, what Putin was trying to talk to Biden about in the latter part of 2021, which Biden, of course, made a verbal concession, said they wouldn't put the missiles there, then uh, either forgot that he made that concession or was told that he'd never made it by his handlers. So, Is there a possibility that this ends with a negotiation around that, where the Poles make their own break for it, massively build up their military, 
absorb this new territory and then basically turn around and tell the Germans to fuck off. All possibilities all end in very unfavorable conditions, though, for the NATO alliance, because even if the Poles decide that they are going to try and recreate some modern version of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth uh, by absorbing this part of Western Ukraine, vastly increasing the size of their army and, of course, their territories, where it's going to seriously annoy the Germans and probably the French as well. So that doesn't bode well for either NATO or the EU. So a lot of fractured alliances on the cards and ultimately an awkward negotiation about the future may emerge if the Russians, which I imagine they will, want to go back and say, this is still the deal that we want to talk about. Or maybe the whole thing just gets frozen. That's another possibility. Maybe the Poles advance to a certain point, the Russians advance to a certain point, the Kiev buffer state is left in place, the whole thing is frozen, no deal is done, and then armed camps face each other across Eastern Europe for the next few years. All possibilities on the cards at the moment, and until the full scope of the Russian offensive is obvious to us, then we won't fully know where they're going for and what their aim is. So to be continued, I think, is the, the question on that. But certainly, Zelensky becomes a more isolated figure as a result of these chopping and changing of his cabinet, and the Americans try and exert more direct control over the line taken by Kiev. To be continued, I think. Which, of course, leads me to talking of grotesque and spectacular failures. It leads me to, of course, Davos. And the meeting of the bizarre and crazy world of the global blood-drinking lizard cabal. I jest, of course. It's the World Economic Forum, led by creepy Bond villain Klaus Schwab. And it is a veritable schmuggest board of absolute bastards from all your least favorite parts of the world, or more specifically, all your least favorite ruling classes. Every criminal CEO, every imperial ring kisser, every failed politician who wants to grovel to somebody with more wealth and power than him to try and secure his next payday, all of them were there. But it's an interesting one because Davos, the meeting of the World Economic Forum that takes place there usually every year, was this big thing for a long time. Back 20 years ago, it used to attract uh, anti-globalization protests. It doesn't so much anymore. Now it attracts protests from various people who are identified as being on the right. And the WEF, though, is one of those places that is a, it is a private members club, essentially, that live streams its meetings. It's a club for rich idiots, um, criminal CEOs, and pathetic politicians who were impressed by wealth and presumably a chance at going to the new equivalent of the Jeffrey Epstein Island. And as I say, it is a diminished setting these days, though, because the Chinese sent like one representative there who's not even a member of the Politburo, their finance minister. And the Russians, of course, weren't there. And Mayor of Kiev, Klitschko, was boasting about that in a video that made him look really sad and pathetic. And Various other countries who had heavy presences there before weren't as engaged. The BRICS countries weren't really there this year. It's a diminished setting because the power of the Western capitalist nations, who really were the target for this, they were the originators, emerges the WEF from the dreams of the European integrationists in the 1960s who 
wanted to encourage the EU project to go further. And this has always been, of course, a reactionary dream under capitalism. The idea of a united Europe under capitalism can't lead to anything but slavery, as Lenin once said. And so the various capitalist interests and various moneyed interests across Europe started the WEF because they wanted to encourage more integration of the capitalist economies of the world, as was at the time. It grew post the uh, counter-revolution in the USSR and the uh, capitalist turn in China. It grew into a sort of showcase of really American power and its sort of various European satraps. But now it's become kind of a weird sideshow. Watching some of the speeches and sessions that they were streaming, and it just came across as very surreal. And... Schwab gave this opening address where he's talking about the need to get on with challenges around governance and global warming. And you'll know if you've listened to the program for a while that uh, we did a review of Schwab's book, The Great Reset, back in the uh, the early part of last year and found it to be one of the most boring and awful, tedious books that I've ever set my eyeballs on. And also one of the stupidest as well. And so Schwab gave this opening address where he sounded vaguely annoyed that um, his plans weren't going very well. And of course, all the European and Northern American and Canadian politicians that were there just babbling about Ukraine. John Kerry, I'm sure he's actually dead, um, but his corpse was uttering phrases about how the elect will save the world, which just goes to show that uh, America really does have an aristocracy and it's just as stupid looking as the old European one was. But most of the politicians there, like the nightmarish uh, ghoul from a Nazi lineage, Christopher Freeland from Canada, and of course uh, Schultz protesting his innocence too much, all saying yeah, support Ukraine, support Ukraine, support Ukraine, it made for a very strange spectacle. And of course the bizarre intervention of uh, the uh, spokes model for um, global climate change bullshit, which is of course Greta Thunberg, who made a bizarre walk and talk press conference appearance where she giggled at the questions from like Rebel News and various other uh, typically right wing outlets, even though the questions they were asking were things that she could have easily answered. She'd clearly been told by her handlers to go out there, giggle at them, and try and provoke a confrontation. Didn't really work out very well. She just looked weird. And of course, the whole thing with Thunberg is. Like she's meant to be this sort of spokes child as was. She's twenty years old now. She's a grown woman. Um, but when she was invented, and she was invented, if you want the lowdown on Greta Thunberg, there was an excellent series of articles written by the journalist and investigator Corey Morningstar, who you can find on Twitter. Uh, her work's all linked to from her Twitter profile. She did an excellent series of articles on Thunberg. It was a couple of years ago now. It was pre-COVID. Uh, so it's 2018, 2019. And what Corey Morningstar researched in that was Thunberg's background, which is that her mother is some stage parent and her father is uh, some f- Swedish finance guy. So this isn't like just some regular kid who dropped out of school. This is somebody from like the upper levels of Swedish society. And what um, Corey Morningstar outlines in those articles that she wrote is that Thunberg was a product. It was a product put together by various interests in finance and green tech to be like a spokeschild of this push within certain bourgeois circles for the advancement of their agenda, which is to push more investment towards various uh, green tech companies 
to secure more subsidies for them, to enable them to make more profits off a, a bourgeois scare story, which is what the catastrophic climate change narrative is. It is a bourgeois scare story, one designed to justify ever-increasing amounts of state funds going to green tech companies, and one designed to be a useful ideological tool for bourgeois politicians justifying why the living standards of workers in countries all over the world are forever diminishing. So Thunberg's appearance, bizarre, weird, um, just revealed everything that those articles said about her was true, which is she's just a programmed actress. And without the lines, she's not got anything. It's all a product. It's all a show. It's all a manufactured piece of corporate activism. So that's a, that was an interesting diversion. But now I come to the, the main topic, which is, of course, a certain Sir Keir Starmer and his bizarre appearance there. Now, the idea, of course, that Starmer thought that this was a good idea going there when Rishi Sunak consciously avoided going there because, of course, the Tory base, a lot of them anyway, and I follow quite a lot of Tories, the, the Tory activists or active right-wingers in Britain on Twitter, they're all in with the idea that the WEF is some sort of communist conspiracy, which, of course, it isn't. It's a club of capitalists. And... So going there would have been very unpopular uh, for Sunak to do. So, of course, he doesn't. Then Starmer, being the dull-witted slab of rotting pig lard that he is, and he's equally stupid chancellor, shadow chancellor, that is, Rachel Reeves, were boasting about that they were, the fact that they were going there, which is bizarre. It's like boasting that you've been invited to the, the island by Jeffrey Epstein, putting it out on Twitter, or boasting that you're attending satanic ritual parties in the basement of some strange temple in uh, a cart hollowed out volcano lair run by Jeff Bezos or something like that. It's a weird thing to be boasting about the fact that you're going to be spending a few days not doing your job as leader of the opposition when parliament is sitting, but actually swanning around with a bunch of CEOs and governmental weirdos talking about things that you say you're going to do when you're in charge of Britain, despite the fact that you're not in charge of Britain and there's not scheduled to be in an election for years, and then go there and when asked about it by one of his media friends, Emily Maitlis, in what was a very softball interview, gave such a strange answer about the fact that when she asked him, well, where would you rather be, Westminster or Davos? And um, Starmer answers Davos because the conversations here are real. Now, I'll come back to that in a moment, but he also said that the, the, Westminster's not real. Westminster's got all these problems with it. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And this is the sort of tedious faux populism that we hear from the likes of Starmer and quite a lot of other politicians who have made an entire career for themselves. And here in the United States as well, where some guy who's been in Congress for 30 years will stand up and go, the Washington bubble is one that is fatal. Or will go like, DC is broken and run by lobbyists, even though there's a guy with his pockets overflowing with lobbyist money. It's the kind of like cheap line that gets a bit of applause from people who don't know who you are or don't know what your record is. And Starmer says, Westminster isn't working. It's not real. The system's broken. Well, if it was a real interview and if Emily Maitlis was a real journalist, which she's not, she would ask him a follow-up question along the lines of, well, isn't that partly your fault? He is the leader of the opposition party. Now, the government has a more than workable majority at the moment. So he can't outvote them unless there's a major Tory rebellion. But he is the leader of the opposition party. If he wanted to, he could, and his front bench could, 
make life considerably more difficult for the Conservative Party and Rishi Sunak's government than he is doing. For instance, he could try scrutinising the government's actual record, which he hasn't done, and he could try staging debates on any of the scandals that come out. You can even find these in the bourgeois press regarding all the corruption on the COVID uh, payments, regarding the devastating amounts of money that have been wasted on private contracting out in the National Health Service, regarding the terrible state of the waterways in a lot of British cities, regarding all of these very dodgy practices that the uh, mass privatization of the public sector has enabled in the in British society, or maybe the chairman of the Conservative Party's tax affairs, or any number of other things the government the government could be called to account for in Parliament by Keir Starmer's supposed opposition party. And Keir Starmer, by the way, spent his first eighteen months in power agreeing with Boris Johnson over things like lockdowns, over things like mandatory or attempts at making vaccinations mandatory, um, ignoring or barely asking a question about the fact that uh, the COVID uh, loans policy and the money that was being funneled to the private sector was often deeply shady and was from the very beginning obviously tinged at the very least by corruption over the fact that David Cameron, the former prime minister, was lobbying Rishi Sunak as chancellor to give more money to Lex Greensill, whose finance company went bust and Cameron was on the board of that company and was lobbying for it. All of that went on in 2020 to 2021. All of these scandals, then of course that's before we even get to the dubious nature of the vaccines and everything else, but just the corruption alone could have been a real opportunity to put the government into crisis, and Keir Starmer didn't take it. In fact, he's had a myriad of opportunities to make life in Parliament far more difficult for Johnson, briefly Truss, and Sunak now, and he's not taken any of them. So for him to sit there, throw out this cheap line about the Westminster system doesn't work, a line which, by the way, means nothing, commits him to nothing. He even... When he, he, the one commitment he made over the Westminster system about uh, going for a fully elected second chamber, he walked that back inside a month. So he's talking about the Westminster system not working, and he's backed off and cancelled, essentially, his only substantive reform of it. So he could easily, easily make the most of his position as leader of the opposition to continually generate bad headlines for the government, to continually push them, push them, and push them on the corruption issues which would really resonate with the British population. He wouldn't even have to mean it, but he won't. And first of all, it's because he's incapable of doing anything dynamic. He's just a doughy sock puppet. Secondly, it points to how he has decided he is going to proceed with regard to his, the deals that he has made with the British ruling class. And what is clear is that the British ruling class do not want a crisis they may be in favour of Starmer becoming Prime Minister, but they are not in favour of him becoming Prime Minister via pushing the government of Sunak into a state of collapse. They are in favour of an orderly transition of power, even if it is one that involves the Tories getting electorally hammered. If Starmer were to actually do the job of a serious opposition, it would cause panic within the ruling class, especially if he were lent heavily on the corruption angle, because British politics is incredibly corrupt. The British government is incredibly corrupt. It pretends it's not. It's just that the corruption here has all been legalised and called something else. 
And if Starmer was to go heavily after Sunak, not only would that upset all his friends in the City of London, but it would, of course, create certain expectations within the population that Starmer was actually going to do anything about any of this. And of course, he doesn't want those expectations. The way he wants to attain power is by basically just letting Sunak and the Tories slowly fall apart, and then he wins in the most easy way possible. He sets no expectations. He sets um, no um, difficult challenges for himself by committing to anything. He just makes these bland, generic promises to do better than the Tories. And that's it. And so his arrangement with the British ruling class is that he's not going to cause any trouble for Sunak. Not really. He'll demand that Nazim Zahawi resigns, but nobody cares about that. He'll say that the prime minister should do X, Y, and Z. He'll drop a zinger at question time, but he won't do anything about it. For him to make the statement that, oh, well, Westminster isn't working. Well, if it's not working, I mean, it is a ludicrous system. But there's so much more, even within the narrow framework of bourgeois parliamentarism, there is so much more that any opposition party could do if they were actually serious about driving the government into a crisis. But he's not. Because if the government gets driven into a crisis, the fragile mess that is the British economy might go down with it, which is the other side of this, of course. The, the even bigger side of it is that British bourgeoisie want a nice, calm, orderly transition of power where Sunak just coasts off back to Silicon Valley or wherever the fuck it is he wants to go. And the Labour Party takes over and gets on with the job that it's been hired for, which is crushing the working class with ever more ruthless efficiency than the Tories could manage. But back to Davos, of course, and it raises the question of, is this Keir Starmer's most honest moment in his entire life? When he blurted out and he looked so happy that he was in Davos? Because this is the thing you need to understand about him, if you didn't already, and I imagine most of you do. Keir Starmer is a man who has defined his entire career by the fact that he's a professional groveler. His only real talent, his sole talent, is in the legal bureaucracy that was the Crown Prosecution Service, which he rose to the top of. He became uh, Director of Public Prosecutions, and when he's become an MP. His talent is to identify what the men above him in the chain of command want to hear, and delivering it. And he is delighted to do so. He is a groveller, he is a social climber, he is a spineless buffoon. His only talent is to shine shoes for rich men. And he's delighted to do it. He loves going over to places like Davos and telling all these people what he wants to hear with lines that have been written for him by various foul creatures that were in the Blair administration. Blair himself was there in Davos, speaking passionately on behalf of his share portfolio, which he always does. So Starmer, just, it's, it's grotesque. He goes over there. He's so delighted to be of service to these like ruling class creeps. And of course, this is who he is. This is who leads the Labour Party. This is what he's in this for. He's in this to provide a service for the richest men on the planet. And so it makes it ever more farcical and ridiculous, of course, that uh, most of the British left are going to turn around and tell you to vote for Starmer when it comes to the next election. He has made his intentions abundantly clear when it comes to how he sees his time in government or his prospective time in government. We can only hope that the next election delivers such a chaotic and mad result that nobody gets a real majority to do anything. A deadlocked and chaotic government in Britain would be better than a strong one that 
only wants to deliver reactionary results and he's only capable of delivering reactionary results. So I will leave it there for today. I'll be back again with another one of these later in the week uh, where I'll be going more into the military situation in Ukraine as it develops as the Russian attack gathers force. But be sure to, if you haven't already, go over to the Patreon page to see all the uh, patrons only content on there and if you haven't checked out the new website it will be linked to in the show description it's the website for the Marks Engels Institute which is now the official home of the Red Star Radio podcast so until next time thank you for listening and I will be speaking to you again very soon A man lives at the corner of the street and his neighbours think he's helpful Cause he never swears and he always shakes your boy the hand But no one knows he really is a plastic Oh, disgrace! Last day!